Welcome to Owned by Everyone, a series of eight podcasts recorded at an extraordinary two-day conference held at the end of March 2023. Our venue was the seminar room at the Cambridge Conservation Initiative in Cambridge University's David Attenborough Building. Speakers stayed at Pembroke College, which also hosted a conference dinner with our speaker, the leading campaigner for our waters, Fergal Sharkey. The subject which drew us together under a phrase come banner owned by everyone first unfurled in 1985 by Ted Hughes, poet laureate and a great environmental advocate and activist for his beloved rivers and their wild fish, is the wonder, plight and future of chalk streams. What made our discussions extraordinary? Well, those who spoke and the timing of what they said. Ninety women and men met after nearly three years of planning to bring an unprecedented range of experience, expertise and passion to a subject more and more of the public now know is as urgent as the chalk streams themselves are valuable. We aimed in the talks we gave and the discussion that followed for a clarity to match chalk stream water flowing at its best. So we wanted to share them with a much larger audience than our venue could accommodate. With everyone, in fact. With children of all ages. That is, anyone who can feel that wonder. With policymakers and those responsible for making decisions about our use and abuse of the hugely undervalued but life-giving element of water in each of our homes and in the Mother of Parliaments. We hope you find these talks refreshing, stimulating, enraging by turns, and ultimately that you want to act on what you hear. Thanks for listening. A very warm welcome to everybody. My name is John Fanshaw. I'm the Curator of the Art, Science and Conservation Programme here for the Cambridge Conservation Initiative and have been co-organising this meeting with, with Mark and others. And I'm just going to give a very brief background and then I'm afraid some housekeeping and then I will hand over to Mark for a moment and then to, to uh, Lord Smith to introduce the first session. So a little bit of background, key thing, remember basically is that we're a co collaboration between the university and 10 international organizations such as Fauna and Flora International and so on. We built originally around a collaborative fund because of this concentration of conservation organizations and conservation academics in Cambridge. We moved into this building, the David Attenborough building in 2016. Or obviously been reduced in numbers considerably, but at full capacity, there are about 450, 500 working in here across the organisations, about 150 academics and 350 practitioners. So that's background. Um, the university is organised in the University Conservation um, Research Institute, and um, it includes zoology and ge zoologists, geographers, plant scientists, and so on. The arts, science, and conservation program which which I coordinate is really an effort to bring artists and it's out of this 
collaboration with artists that the original discussions began with Mark. Um, I don't want to think too much about it, but we run exhibitions, events, and we hold residencies, and we've got residence artists in the in the building at the moment, and eight residencies across um, our Endangered Landscapes program across across Europe. So working with artists has been a key part of, of what we do. And for those of you who have arrived in the building, you've walked past an installation of, of maps by the, the artist and bell maker Marcus Forget, who's actually... Uh, also Devon-based, like Ted Hughes was, and also a farmer as well as an artist. So interesting kind of um, links back to, to Ted Hughes. I think the, the only other thing I think I'd like to say about, about, about CCI specifically, since so many of you already know, is that we run an MPhil in conservation leadership from within the geography department, which I think is one of our sort of proudest components started in the year 2010-2011. It's um, hosted now 240 students from 90 countries. They come for an intense nine-month period, um, undertake a placement with one of the organisations in the building. So they're very much steeped in the, in, in the conservation community here. And I think that the alumni of that, of that field have been significant, really significant players for all of us. And I suppose the only thing, other thing to say about it is the teaching, although I think I have to confess, I think we learn almost as much from them as we teach them. Um, the teaching is done by over 60 people from the CCI community and beyond. So there's a really huge input to that. Right. Also point out a couple of key people in the room, Mark Warnold, co-organizer, but actually the prime catalyst. So he's done 95% of the work. Um, my colleague Liz Ballard, who is our residencies coordinator and is a go-to person for key questions, and also Imi O'Keefe from Wild Fish, who's also here and will be a, a key person for answers for questions. And then just, I mean, I'll hand over to Mark, but just to make the point, this is really powerfully a collaboration between Wild Fish, Nick Meacham, director of this here, and you'll hear from more Pembroke and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. And I would say that collaborations since we started with a collaboration fund um, before we moved into this building collaboration is at the heart of all that we're doing so mark i'll hand over to you thank you very much john and welcome everyone it is so exciting particularly after the year's delay imposed by covid but welcome everyone to what i hope will be a fantastic couple of days um, owned by everyone includes to start with a very unusual request which is to keep your phones on because this conference belongs to you Age of people in the room is an important thing. Excellent. Do you? So let's see how we're doing with this. Do you? So we have some fishermen, we have some walkers, we have some wildlife watchers. A lot of us take photographs because we've all got these amazing cameras on our phones. We swim, we kayak, we paddleboard, we paint or draw, we even row. An amazing range of uses and interactions and indeed chalk streams interestingly because the Thames is a chalk stream okay great we need to start getting everyone involved everyone owning this you can post comments in response to any presentation you can make comments which we will then take forward into our final session which is looking forward I will also present then the results from Tuesday evening of the local community to see what an hour and a half with them can do to change their level of information and concern and hope, and what then we can do going forward, which we'll be discussing tomorrow afternoon. So I am now going to hand back to John.
Thank you, Mark. Thank you. And just to say, I mean, you can tell Mark, Mark's energy behind all of this has just been extraordinary. So thank you, Mark, for that. So it really just falls to me to, um, to introduce Chris Smith, Lord Smith of Finsbury, who is Master Pembroke, former Minister of State for Culture, and indeed Chair of the Environment Agency, a, uh, a role which, of course, has placed Chris right at the heart of this debate for a significant period of time and say thank you very much to, to you and to Pembroke for supporting us and I'll hand over the chair of the first session. Thank you. Thank you uh, very much indeed. Um, I, I did once ask an audience, can you all hear me? And someone at the back shouted out, yes, I can, but I'm willing to swap with someone who can't. <laughs> uh, so, so I do hope you can all hear me. Um, now, the first session this morning is going to be setting the scene. Uh, it's uh, going to be uh, examining the crisis in chalk streams and uh, uh, then we can begin to think about what we can uh, do to uh, try and address that crisis. And we have three participants in the first uh, session. I'm going to ask each of them to come and do their piece. 20 minutes maximum, please. If you transgress, I will wave Mark's red folder um, you. Um, and um, we have Mark Wormald, Adam Nicholson and Catherine Sayer uh, uh, to uh, talk to us in this first session. And uh, after they've each said something, we will then throw it open for uh, questions. And I suspect this being a rather knowledgeable audience, the questions are going to be even uh, tougher than they might be uh, elsewhere. But uh, first of all, um, uh, Mark uh, Wormald. Mark uh, is uh, a fellow and college lecturer at Pembroke, uh, has been uh, for uh, uh, something uh, like 22 years, I think. 31. Uh, Mark is also uh, um, a leading expert on the poetry of Ted Hughes. He's just recently uh, published uh, uh, his book, The Catch, uh, Fishing for Ted Hughes. Um, uh, he is also chairman of the Ted Hughes Society. He knows a thing or two about Ted Hughes and poetry and fishing, because Mark is a, a, a very accomplished uh, fisherman. Uh, so, Mark, over to you. Thank you very much. Can you all hear me? In the back, shout if or wave if you can't. Okay, making something happen. Ted Hughes, wild fish and chalk streams. In February 1939, the great poet W.H. Auden wrote a poem in memory of the great Irish poet W.B. Yeats from America. And this is part of it. You were silly like us. Your gift survived it all. The parish of rich women, physical decay, yourself, 
Mad Ireland hurt you into poetry. Now Ireland has her madness and her weather still. We'll come back to that. But poetry makes nothing happen. It survives in the valley of its making, where executives would never want to tamper. Flows on south from the ranches of isolation and the busy griefs, raw towns that we believe and die in. It survives a way of happening, a mouth. Well, the past is another country. For the last 10 years, I have been getting to know very well Ted Hughes's poetry and the valleys of its making. And I want to talk to you about Ted Hughes. In South Yorkshire, when he was an 11-year-old in, in the war, he read and kept out of the school library for 18 months and memorised every word of it, Tarka the Otter. In 1961, he moved to Devon, and the first day of the trout season, 1962, he went down to the River Tour, five minutes away. And what he saw, it was a shock to realise what I'd done, ended up in my childhood dream on Tarka's River. He was actually born on the Torridge, which shares the same estuary, but he roamed over both. I ended up later with the fishing on the Torridge which included the trees under which, one of which he was born and spent all the ages fighting one way or another to save that river. I never saw another otter down here till four or five years ago when they started to release artificially bred otters into the torridge. Now, there it is. That's Weir Pool. That is Beam Weir in, the, in low flow. The rail, the rail, look at that bridge over the top. We'll come back to that. Um, da, 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 da. There we go. In September 1961, as I said, Ted, Sylvia and Frieda Hughes moved to North Taunton on the tour. In autumn 1966, Ted had a dream just before he went to Ireland that he was walking the high tour at Tor Marsh and there was a waterfall out of which salmon were leaping, writhing in midair, covering him with Milton sperm, an extraordinary dream. He resuscitated that with creativity and fertility, obviously. It could not have happened because another North Taunton man in 1856 had had the idea of draining Tor Marsh for the North Devon Water Board. And the pipes installed there had been depleting, lowering the flow of the Tor ever since. They've now realised it's a bad idea and they switched them on, disconnected them. And Fergal Sharkey last week, on the Planet Pod, quoted uh, R.C. Walters in terms of extreme um, crisis. The chalk aquifers in 1963 surrounding London have been pumped almost to extinction. Now, I'm not going to read that because it's in your programme. <clears throat> Just a bot at the end. Ted was a farmer. Ted knew the torridge inside out. He knew the press it was under, and he knew at the bottom. Even there, there are signs that the recently discovered, not to say revolutionary truth, what you pour down the drain reappears in your cup, is beginning to filter through. Now, it doesn't filter in the same way because it's not a chalk stream, but it's a sign of his passion. I'm just going to take you through very rapidly through a few highlight moments. He wrote in March 1984, and I'm not going to read all of this, I will send you the slides to his friend and critic Keith Sagar about the battle that he'd begun to get involved with over Biddeford Sewage Works and the Southwest Water Authority. As a result of that, there are the kind of the problems of sewage, 
75% of surfers and canoeists pick up infections in assorted dysenteries, etc. Terrible for tourism, terrible, of course, for the river's fish, which he cared passionately about. And, but not yet so passionately, ah, there we go, to publish his poem, and he never did, a poem which he called to, 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 to Kisega, said, written by one of the local lads. Don't publish it because it'll be libelous. I'm not being libelous now because it's in an archive. The Ballad of Biddeford Browns. We're not talking here about trout. And I'm not Sam Lee, so I'm not going to sing this, but oh, all Torridge beaches are squidgy with feces. So come, you jolly toddlers, and fall on your faces. But don't expect us to pay heed to your cries, for we all sit in excrement up to our eyes. <laughs> 1984, a drought summer like last year. And on the Torridge, bad news. Hughes had read Orwell, and he wrote this poem, but did not publish until 1992, 1984 on the Tarka Trail. The Tarka Trail now runs over that railway bridge at Beam. And it also ran past where he fished a little bit upstream. The river's suddenly green, dense bottle green, hard in the sun, dark as spinach. Look familiar? It's the river's gutted. A boom of plenty for algae, surfactants, ammonia, phosphates. This is a man who knew his science. The whole banquet flushed in by sporadic thunderbursts, but never a flood enough to scour a sewer, never enough to resurrect a river. The tale of a dying river doesn't end where you stand with the visitors at a sickbed. Why? Because the Minister of Agriculture and Fishery, the composition and the encouragement to farmers to intensify their Crop yield means that all of this heaps the poison into you too. That same unpalatable but essential truth. Local lad, as it happens, makes good. That Christmas he becomes poet laureate <clears throat> and he publishes Rain Charm for the Duchy, a poem that he'd written about that drought summer and its <coughs> remarkable surge of energy, a furious devout drench. But he keeps out these lines but shares them with Ted, with Keith Sagar, and the Torrids, that hospital sluice of all the doctored scabby farms from Welcome to Hatherley to Torrington. Paul bleached the letter in her pit, praying that this at last is the kiss of the miracle. Is it? Would it be? Well, not for a while yet, but this is where it comes relevant to why we're here. In February 1985, he wrote his first poem as laureate, and it was to raise money for the Atlantic Salmon Fund. He auctioned the manuscript later in that in February, and eventually it was published. And he gives the best worker in Europe, the salmon, a voice. Salmon can't speak, he gave them a voice. The best worker in Europe's only six weeks long, suddenly all his labors fail, but still he sings. What's wrong, my dears? I'll tell you just what's wrong. My respiration, my circulation, compulsory purchase by the nation are now sewers of your civilization. God help the slave, sings the salmon small, who is, owned by everyone. Mm. That's where this phrase comes. And the wolf takes him easily. Every wave upon the sea, drift netting, carries a wolf that lives on me. Most of us live on farmed salmon. We are those wolves, most of us. Another key thing happened that February. He wrote to Dermot Wilson. Fishermen amongst you will know Dermot Wilson as the doyen of dry fly fishing, the purist. The gent. We'll see pictures of him in a minute. But he was also a contributor with Ted Hughes to West Country Fly Fishing, where Ted published his amazing essay, Tor and Torridge. 
But and more importantly still, for these purposes, he was founder of the Water Resources Board for Salmon and Trout Association. And Ted thanks him for sending a copy of a, a fishing book in which the writer Ashley Cooper makes sense, which if marshaled properly, though not scientific, could stop the Southwest Water Authority introducing licenses for trout stocking. He talks about scientific papers that Dermot had sent him, which start promising and then veer away and a bit inconclusive. That was a, a theme of Ted because he, he always thought that one scientific a bit of evidence could be encountered by another. And then he refers to the World Wildlife magazine. And I found it on Monday. Um, tiny little Putnam magazine, but in Devon, drought causes at the top that mattered most to Ted. The abstraction has reduced from 15 million, million gallons a day to a two mere, mere 2 million gallons. This is abstracted above a sewage works of Creamery and the North Devon meat factory. The effluent from which was far less diluted and will have affected the aquatic life in the river quite dramatically. Now, Ed, in this letter, identified those problems, located them very precisely. He talked about those two million gallons of a day low flow, algal glue bloom phenomenal, stagnant water, and the whole deadly sequence, he said, was set into action by who, whoever manipulates that flow. And that is, of course, the Southwest Water Authority. He also, in that letter, responded to an invitation by Dermot to join the Salmon and Trout Association and an action group. Now, there is the bit of the Torridge. Torrington, that down there, the red, is Beamwell where Ted loved to fish, and Graham Swift too. That is just Hughes country, so North Torton bottom <laughs> right is where he lived. The tour goes up the right of the map, the, the Torrid, the country of the two rivers, Williamson calls it. It's really Hughes country. Wonderful, but a long way from chalk streams until Dermot Wilson invited him to join the club. Initiation rides, late May the prime of the fishing season on the best of the rivers. Three days, a different day on each, the itch and the test and the open. Ted had been fishing on the Spey in Scotland, drove straight down with salmon on his mind and equipped only with a big salmon net. And also thoughts of his Irish fishing friends, where he had been for the last two summers, fishing for dry, for trout on and um, limestone locks. What a jewel of a three days it was for me. With that kind of weather, my Irish fishing companions would have despaired. They need a cloud before they'll tie on a fly. And uh, right. Then, essentially, he just marvels at his initiation. He said, it's as if I, the notion of performing in an old English mystery play halfway down, <laughs> as performed historically in the Houghton Club and the Piscatorial Society, we've got members here, began to make me realise how ill-dressed I was for the part. And equally, my guy net, big salmon net, I feel it wasn't far off a bound pack of dynamite. <laughs> and there he is, with guy net, connecting with <laughs> trout. One of the few pictures that were ever taken of Ted Hughes actually in the act. He had, over the next three years, amazing company. This is Sir Michael Horden, um, great Shakespearean actor and avid fisherman. He then, when he was invited back, they shared a, plat a, a platform at the Salisbury Festival. He then wrote back accepting at, at once an invitation and sharing 
He said, this time I'll bring a, some of my Irish friends' copy deck spent. This is hardcore fishing stuff. Really tying, <laughs> very pretty. And there it is. A double hook with copy decks glue body. Larry Cook invented this. That's Dermot, Wilson, Napper. <coughs> That's Ted and Barry, rougher, the river dart. Back on the torridge in March. That's Michael Horden wading out of the torridge with snow on the banks, carrying a frozen salmon, which Ted had tied onto his knot and tricked Michael Horden into landing <laughs> from his freezer. <laughs> and Dermot Wilson was so well known that in 1988, Barry Cook arranged a visit to him and Bill Woodrow, fine artist, Royal Academician, took that photograph, which he gave me last Friday. Now, 1988, Ted writes the Trout and Salmon. I'll skip this bit because I want to get to the exciting bit. Um, but it's about political will. He says the voice of the fishery needs to disguise itself, camouflage itself. If it can, things can happen. And in North Devon, uh, Emma Nicholson MP, new chief executive of the South West Water Authority, had the will to solve the estuaries quick problem quickly and completely so. A vague environment minister, as he described him, was overcome by this force of will, with the result that 20 million quid were devoted to Roadford Lake, still the newest reservoir in England. And it came online in 1989. So, but fishermen alone won't get heard because a few rich gentlemen wanting to catch salmon will convince no one, says Emma Nicholson. 1992. He writes the poem. <clears throat> he actually repurposes a poem he'd originally written about the dart, and there is an echo at the end of it, and I'm not going to read it, of passionate salmon fishing woman who thinks hooking her first salmon on the tweed is like giving birth or riding a horse over jumps. Um, and he tells his non-fishing editor, Christopher Reed about dry fly fishing. It's a psychologically determined activity, it's the English art. It's all about stirring on the surface the depths beneath, but not going deep. And in terms of poetic form, it corresponds to typical attitudes to poetic form, which he didn't share, to be honest. He was much closer to the opposite approach, which comes up in the next poem, Stealing Trout. There you get down to the river and grab them with your bare hands. He won other local victories with his friend Ian Cook, but he went, then went global, urging a revolution in the language of environmental discourse in 1992. What's needed is a new kind of language that goes straight to the heart and soul and changes things there. When we change here, then everything has to change. Our whole way of life simply changes and it can change quickly. Amazingly powerful and still resonating. And then 1993, The Iron Woman, a children's story, a successor to The Iron Man, 1968, in which a gigantic iron woman, not Mrs. Thatcher, the iron lady, absolutely not, emerges from the marshes, the lower stretches of a river, and touches Lucy, reaches out to Lucy, 12-year-old Lucy, and then she touches her girl. And what happens when they touch each other is, amazingly, that they can suddenly hear the screams of all the creatures in the river that have been poisoned for years. They're being given voice, and that touch is contagious. I can hear it, so I touch Chris, he can hear it. When we touch, it's contagious. You've caught it off the iron woman, now I've caught it off you. If I grab someone, they'll hear it too. 
It doesn't work, though, because the people who run the waste recycling plant upriver are men who've got the profit motives, stops them acting. Women get it, but men are punished for this. They're turned into fish. And all, every man in the country becomes a fish, including the prime minister himself, a six foot long dragonfly larva in the bath at number 10. His secretary came in every hour to tell him about the latest phone calls. But all he did was wave his feelers at her and push his strange mechanical jaws in and out. Ted then gives evidence of a public inquiry in 1997 in which he basically says, fishermen do something, find something about the river that very few other people can. And it's that possibility of coming to grips with the wild fish that does it. Wild fish, owned by everyone. In 2019, we had a conference in this room on the plight of the salmon, inspired by Ted Hughes, very directly. We produced a conference volume in which, and a, a programme in which that image by Charles Jardine um, is, was on the front cover. We gave the programme notes just as for now for you. And Nick, listening, suggested a title for the conference proceedings, Wild Fish. Absolutely inspired by Ted Hughes. 2021, Martin Rosen covering Nicola Sturgeon and Alex Salmond, get it, <laughs> publishes this cartoon in The Guardian. Our threatened river life, see the figure in the back, pissing into the river. Profit over spilled dead. Alex, Nicola. I asked him for a copy. I asked him to say, wild fish. He sent it, but ink splodge. Proof, it's live. It still is. In last July, the organisation that had been Salmon and Trout Association, Old Boys Club, became Salmon and Trout Conservation. Young Boys Club became inclusive, wild fish. Very exciting. It got worse. Liz Truss, followed by low flows. Last word. My Irish friend. Ireland has its weather still. Barry Cook, Ted's closest friend, Seamus Heaney's closest friend. I found this footage, which I can't show you yet, but I can quote what he said in 2007 about the beauty and horror of water and the challenge of seeing it clearly and painting it. Nor, these local river, the Nor, was polluted. He painted a picture of a sewage discharge from the Nor. The North Sea, the Irish Sea are just bigger lakes. They're poison too. Phosphates, nitrates, chemical waste, radioactive waste. It's all so simple, he said. Without living water, we die. I think we should have T-shirts printed with this. But before we do that, on World Rivers Day, on Sunday the 24th of September, I hope, and there is a fair chance because we've applied for funds, that the Zoology Museum, its director, Becky Kilner, is here. James Calver and Peter Manning from the Bath Festival Orchestra. Uh, Wild Fish Conservation and Pembroke, which has the newest auditorium in the country, and Bath Festival Orchestra is the youngest professional orchestra in the country, will be doing some events involving Fenland children and an extraordinary, we hope, multi-sensory experience for them and the local community. So watch this space and listen. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Uh, you anticipated the red card with about 30 seconds yeah, to spare. And uh, now Adam Nicholson to uh, talk about the plight of chalk streams. Adam has written books about places, poetry and history. He lives on a small farm in Sussex. His most recent book, Life Between the Tides, 
described his making of three small rock pools on the coast of Argyll and the lives of some of the creatures that came to I did, I did. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chris. It's lovely to be here. Last time I, I met uh, Lord Smith, and not, not then ennobled, he was Secretary of State for Culture. I was writing a book for my sins about the Millennium Dome. And I interviewed him, member of the Labour government. Do you love, do you love the dome, Mr. Smith? <laughs> Terrible long pause. The special advisor said, I think we could move on. Don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> remember that? Anyway. <laughs> um, Right, so great, very nice to be here. Now, it is, of course, particularly alarming to address an audience that knows absolutely everything about chalk streams by someone who knows virtually nothing. So uh, forgive me, the only reason I'm here is that I've spent the last year writing an article for National Geographic and so about chalk streams, and I've interviewed many of you. Probably you will recognise what I have to say at this stage. So my, the brief, I think, is the state of state of uh, So let's see if this works. So here is a little bit of film I made with my with my iPhone last year with Nick standing on the bridge over the Avon with Nick and Janina. The culture is no better than its rivers. Uh, that's obviously a nick from, let's see if I make that happen again. This has everything about it. This, this beautiful, swaying, slow loveliness, this lovely fringed edge to the river, sense of kind of absolutely Arcadian English perfection. But in fact, if we look at this again, that reed, that reed there, that ribbon reed, which is called burr weed, is it called? Does anyone know what that reed is? Anyway, Arcanium. it's symptomatic of inadequate flow. Thank you very much. It's symptomatic of a river not having enough water in it. And this water that you see here is filled with agricultural uh, pollutants. It's filled with soil runoff and that uh, distant view there is into Sting's estate. Sting's estate, not Sting, the Sting. Sting's estate. It is not our river. It is a private river. So that beautiful Arcadian view is poisoned privacy, not belonging to us, not our river. Maybe a public good. Maybe a thing that all the country needs to treasure, but is not ours. Not, of course, that all chalk streams are, you know, in a, a bad way. This lovely picture of the itch taken by my friend uh, Charlie Hamilton James. Everybody involved with chalk streams is called Charlie with a double barrel name, I don't know. <laughs> 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 This, this man is in heaven. This is the kind of heaven that all of you know about. And you've often been there, no doubt. But even this lovely bit of river has a very reduced invertebrate life from the uh, water plants, mm -hmm. uh, plant and, and salad washing uh, 
being upstream, which has been closed now, but definitely a completely reduced life under this view. And the view is not enough. The look is not enough, however exquisite that is, and you will all have enjoyed those moments. This is why these, these this is the test at Long Parish. That's Richard Wills fishing in his river. And look at that for a dream of what England might be. England, you don't know that just out of shot on the left is the motorway, which has a completely unfiltered runoff of road runoff with filled with tar rubbish and all the diesel and all the rest of it. You don't see that in the view. But there are these lovely things. We were just talking earlier, someone I was talking to about how railing were treated as, as vermin earlier are in fact these extraordinary magical pictures. You have Charlie double barrels for, for these wonderful pictures. Round trout and there's the Avon and Braemar covered in the ranunculus at the water cut. That is, you know, constable, you should be live, living at this hour, should you not? I mean, look, look at the kind of dream qualities of that. Is it a world we long for? Well, I do. Now, I didn't know that Charlie, other double barrel name person, is going to be here. <laughs> but I think this is, this is the remaking of, uh, I don't even know where it is. Where is it? Do you know where it is? I don't know where that is. <laughs> you should be here, yeah. I tell you. Um, uh, so, I mean, there are things I learned from him. There are, of course, as you know, three qualities to a chalk stream that needs looking at, which is a river form. River, uh, water quality and water quantity and river form is being addressed by many this is uh, Charles Raisley Wilson's remaking of the Nar in Norfolk this kind of re-snaking of the river and eventually ending up rich with life and fullness like that this is a part of the Bourne rivulet which is entirely remade by Simon Kane who many of you will know uh, who is really the kind of father of uh, river remaking. And so it is possible to do the good thing and to find salmon par uh, growing in places where new reds are made. But there's also, I won't talk about uh, pollution today, but I mean, it is absolutely astonishing that uh, in 2022, this, this sign appears on the Anton in one of the feeders of the of the tests that's uh, telling people not to touch the water, They're not to, if you have any contact with the water, wash yourself. It is a deep disgrace. But as I say, I think you know we know enough about the, this kind of pollution. I won't go into that. So really, this is. I think the main thing is about water quantity, and this is the great Paul Jennings who is championed the remaking of the chess in the Chilterns. And this is <coughs> in Chesham, in suburban Chesham. And at his feet here, at a pipe, and he doesn't know where it comes from, because somewhere buried deep in the chalk, water just absolutely pours out. That's day in, day out, 365 days a year from the deep aquifer, chalk aquifer of the Chiltern, just pouring out 
into into our world and it's this whole talks very wonderfully about the kind of um i don't really want to use this word but he, he used it the spiritual qualities of this of course people have always responded to this something from nothing nature of the spring the chalk springs probably that more than anyone else these well, any other but this is uh this is the headwaters of the Babingley in Norfolk. I mean, no one, I think if you showed people that picture, they would not assume that was in England. But here are, here's the, this is a, a bubble noise off the internet, for which, forgive me. <laughs> <laughs> this is Russell Bates here, and he was talking endless nonsense. Sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that magical? Don't you think just the kind of the emergence from nothing of spring water? We've got it four or five times, I think. Here, <laughs> any of you been there? To the Babingley sources? They are a dreamlike place. And I, as I said, said to him, you know, you should tell everyone. He said, if I told everyone, it would soon be ruined. And so that is a question. You think back in relation to this whole thing. If you is the one of the reasons that places like this are so lovely, if they are so private, how on earth do you balance the need for public ownership, public love of short streams with their fragility? Okay, so here, this is another version of the English dream. This is Richard Wills. At uh, the middle, on the Middleton Estate in Long Parish on the Test. And this is the Test running to his mill and his absolutely stupendous fishing. <laughs> that is a fishing hut. <laughs> are you smiling? Some are and some. <laughs> okay, and so this is Richard's, these are Richard's maps of uh, part of his bit of the Test. And this map on the left here is done in 1911 and you can see that the main stream runs down here with all these carriers and leads and all kinds of things here and the kind of secondary channel down there and everything in blue has water in it in 1911. This is one he made in 2020. Blue has water in it, the red is dry. That entire valley which was once running rippling with water is now desiccated, except in <laughs> one or two beds, which are letterable fishing uh, of, of the test. And I think that this is the best picture I've seen of the creeping baseline problem with chalk streams. That everybody thinks chalk streams are this. They're not. They're essentially this. They are utter networked. Uh, connected wet worlds. And here's a paragraph by Frank Sawyer, the great riverkeeper on the Avon, writing in uh, the early 50s about his own boyhood before the First World War. 50 years ago, the waters of our valleys covered a surface almost treble that which they do today. Our river courses then were recipients of hundreds of tiny waterways and of the multitude of creatures which each and all of the waterways produced. Those grass-fringed runnels, ditches and carriers remain vivid in my memory today, 
for everywhere was a scene of activity. Everywhere were masses of crawling caddis and snails. Every stone or loose turf sheltered a horde of shrimps, a small fly larvae, while thousands of millows scattered in panic as great trout and eels sped along the carriers to safety in the deep pools of the hatchways, or scrambled with their backs out of the water to the drains and thence to the main. Every pool was full of light. Well, that not that an absolute hymn to water fullness? Water fullness as the condition in which these rivers will thrive, not as single letterable channels, but as entire worlds, uh, entire water worlds. And this is a painting, amazingly, that, that uh, Richard Wills has in his house of the test at Long Parish. Now, do you remember that picture of him fishing? It was a, it's a, a bed, well, well, I don't know, maybe half the width of this room. That's the test at Long Parish. Look at it, it's like something in Kamchatka. Wild, rough, with, I mean, maybe this is a, a moment of flood and, and sort of destruction, but even so, just the volume of water, which none of us in our gut and heart really know about. So here uh, uh, is a map of the Chilton chalk streams last summer. Every red strip there is dry, desiccated. These are pictures I think which Charles Rains Wilson probably took of, of killed rivers, rivers killed by abstraction, by taking water out of the aquifer and so desiccating the roots of the river. Here is a map of the Eyeballs, uh, which is one of the few rooms that runs north from the Chilton Chalk, comes out at the bottom of the chalk, and so has a very uh, steady constant flow. Add this map, 1909. And on the Eyeball, on these first, I think this is only four miles here, something like that. On the Eyeball are watercress beds, a medieval mill of Black Horse another medieval mill at Norton, a medieval mill at Radwell, and a medieval mill at Stockville. They are all in the Doomsday books. They have all been there for a thousand years. Okay, so this is the condition of the Eiffel last summer. With that very marvelous man who flew a, a microlight over the summit of Everest the other day. But uh, that's his other occupation line. <laughs> but look, you know, that, so this is a river which is clearly an everlasting all-year river because you wouldn't invest in four mills on a river that occasionally ran. And this now is like this every summer. And the reason is that the water company, it's affinity water here, have lowered the water table by between six and eight meters. They have literally taken the pump, the heart, out of that river system and killed it. Of course, none of that magical river life that uh, Sawyer was talking about could possibly, I mean, could possibly survive in this. You know, this is this is river murder here. Now, I don't know, how are we doing on the time? Oh, three, four minutes. Okay, so this is just the thing about the cost of water. This map here is of the cost of water, 
but it's not just a kind of raw data. This is uh, in relation to the cost of living in each of these countries. Well, most of Western Europe is paying up at this top end here, six to eight uh, euros per cubic meter of water, tap water. Eastern Europe pays less, or Central Europe pays less, and Eastern Europe even less. United Kingdom is this color here. It's down in the eastern end. <laughs> and here, this is this uh, adapted price. Norway, Denmark, Czech Republic, Belgium, France, Estonia, Sweden, Austria, mm. Croatia, UK, down here. We are paying a cheap water. And this is not a market price. This is a price established by the regulator. There is, and what is the implication of that? The implication of that is that the political emphasis, the, the electoral benefit comes from cheap tap water. And it's reflected in the relationship of the regulators of what decides this and the environment agency, which has to you know, cope with the state of the rivers, picks up the crab, in effect. It is, I think this is the absolutely murderous chart of why rivers are often destroyed in England. Last bit, about that's about cheap water, which I think is absolutely central, largely from talking to Mr. Rangers. This is the upper itching, the first kind of site, <laughs> about 60 <laughs> map here, which is here. And along the upper itching, there is a path, a public footpath called the Itchin Way to allow the public to see the itching and meet the itching. Okay. This is the Itchin Way in red here. And these are the points, I think there are seven of them in the first <laughs> 16 miles, where the Itchin Way actually touches the Itchin. Otherwise, the Itchin Way is kept away from the river. Here, I think it's the most amazing. It could have gone there by the river, but it goes all the way up to the road and back. It never meets the river because the river is kept private. The river is denied. <laughs> The, the everyday person, uh, uh, denied to the everyday person. And so I think that until people generally come to think of these rivers as theirs and politics can respond to that sense of ownership, there will be little change in this story. So finally, I think this is what it should be like. This is swimming in the Wissy. There's the wonderful Nicola Crockford, you know her, the great river snorkeler. Look at that for joy. That's what our relationship to these rivers should be like. Or there's that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, back with more gliding serenely than honking. Um, uh, now uh, on to Catherine Sayer.
to uh, tell us about Atlantic salmon and their subpopulations. Um, Catherine is the lead for freshwater biodiversity in the IUCN Biodiversity Assessment and Knowledge Team based in the Science and Data Center here in this building. Catherine, Thank over you. to you. <clears throat> Thanks everyone, it's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Um, yeah, as Rob said, I'm based in IUCN, so in this very building up on the third floor. Um, if you have a chance to explore it all later in the day. Um, so, yeah, my presentation is going to be on work that we've been doing on the Atlantic salmon, um, assessing it and its subpopulation to the IUCN Red List of Tripod Species. So, um, I'll say from the start that I'm going to kind of pull back from chalk streams and Catherine, yes. It might be worth standing close to the microphone or speaking up a bit. Is that okay? Yes, this better? Is better? Speak and speak up a bit. Yeah, this better? Well, here, can you hear, can everybody hear Catherine now? Absolutely. <laughs> okay, just wave at me if you can't hear me. Sure. Okay, is that better? Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, yeah, so I'm going to take um, start with a step back from port streams and the UK specifically and talk about more of a global perspective, because that's what much of my work focuses on. Um, talking about the status of um, freshwater, freshwater biodiversity globally, then going to move to talking about the ice and redness of threatened species and work we've been doing on assessing freshwater fishes generally, and then move to the Atlantic setting and then bring it back to the English chalk streams, which we've been already heard about this morning. So, first of all, to talk about just freshwater biodiversity globally. So, as you may be aware, uh, wetlands cover less than 1% of the Earth's surface. So, they are completely dwarfed in terms of area by the terrestrial and the marine realms. But despite that, they support over 10% of all known species, and that's uh, including a third of all vertebrates. So, they really are biodiversity hotspots because we've got a tiny area and we've got a huge number of, of species and, and biodiversity. So they're very valuable um, for that reason alone. But on top of that, they're also vital for human survival in terms of the ecosystem services that they provide. So this is things like water provision, um, nutrient cycling, flood control, erosion control. And it's been estimated that these ecosystem services are worth up to 15 trillion US dollars per year. So it's not just that they're important for their biodiversity, they're also uh, important for our survival from a kind of financial point of view. <laughs> Despite this, um, wetlands are in a bad place. I mean, the talks that we've already heard this morning on chalk streams give you a sense of that, but globally, 64% of wetlands have been lost since 1990. And um, unfortunately, Europe is one of the places where we have the highest rates of loss. If we look at um, free-flowing rivers, only 37% of rivers over a thousand kilometers remain free-flowing. So that means the majority um, are blocked by barriers such as dams. And this is, of course, um, stopping migratory fishes and other migratory species moving up and down. It affects the hydrology upstream and downstream of those barriers. And as a result of this, we see that fresh freshwater populations are declining faster than in any other biome. So here we see um, a species that went extinct within the last 20 years. Um, one report that's put out by WWF um, and ZSL is the Living Planet Index. So this tracks the status of um, vertebrate populations globally. And the latest report since uh, in 2022 found that freshwater vertebrate populations have declined by 83% since 1970. 
And again, that difference, that decline is huge when compared to um, populations in the terrestrial and marine realms. And bringing that all together, the work that I do is on IUCN relative threatened species. And of the species that we've assessed so far, 27% of freshwater species are threatened with extinction. So that means that they're expected to have a high to extremely high relative risk of extinction in the near future. Um, as a comparison, if you look at birds, um, they're between 10 to 15% extinction. So it, it varies between groups, but generally all of the data are telling us that the freshwater realm is, is not doing well. So I'm going to talk a bit now about the IUCN Register Threatened Species. Before I do so, could you just raise your hand if you're familiar? So I know. Okay, okay. Right. So um, for those who aren't aware, um, the IUCN Register Threatened Species, or just the IUCN Register for short, is the world's most comprehensive information source on the extinction risk of species at the global level. And we focus on um, animals, plants, and fungi. Uh, despite the name, it's not just a list. We um, record species level data on things like the distribution, population, habitats and ecology, use and trade, and conservation and research actions that are relevant to species. We then use these supporting data and we have um, criteria that are um, objective and data-driven and we apply the supporting data to them to assign species to extinction risk categories. So these go anywhere from least concern, which are your kind of generally widespread, common, abundant species, all the way up to um, critically endangered, which are the most threatened with extinction. And then we have extinct in the wild and extinct. Um, we also have a category called data deficient, which is for cases where we just don't have any idea of the extinction risk of the species, um, either because we just don't know anything about it at all, or because the data are just so variable that it could be anywhere from being concerned and highly threatened. Um, these Red List assessments are published um, online on the Red List website, which you can see here. And they are based on the best scientific data available at the time of assessment. And they're produced um, through a long assessment and review process in collaboration with the world's leading species experts and conservation experts on, on the species involved. And the results are published um, online. Um, the Red List is considered is an online scientific journal with each Red List assessment being considered like a, a scientific article as such, and it's open access. Um, I'm just gonna talk briefly about why we do this. So what's the point of assessing a species for the Red List? Um, well, first of all, it's a really important education awareness tool. You see any of these news stories about, you know, species threatened with extinction, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. It's based on the red list. If you go to a zoo or aquaria and you see the signs, which have got the little factoids about the species and the, the category of their extinction risk, that's based on the red list. It's really important for um, spreading the word about how species are doing and also about how groups of species are doing. We can pull all the data together and do um, analyses and we can look at the data um, within taxonomic groups, between taxonomic groups, within particular geographies worldwide, looking at how um, threat processes vary between different regions. Um, and all of these data feed into important conservation planning and priority setting. For example, the Red List data are used to define key biodiversity, key biodiversity areas, which are sites um, of importance for the global survival of species. Um, 
The redness data also influences funding allocations. So some donors who fund, fund conservation work, environmental work, will only fund species which are listed as threatened on the red list, for example. Um, and it's also, um, redness data also feeds into international conservation policies. For example, it's mentioned as a uh, sustainable development goals and the redness index is a, a indicator for those. And then finally, um, the data can also be used by the private sector for their decision making. So when they're planning developments as such, they can identify areas that are high risk because of biodiversity um, or, or low risk. So we can best guide where they might want to um, develop. So um, historically, the red list has been very centred on terrestrial vertebrates. So one of the first groups to be comprehensively assessed was the birds and then the mammals. Um, and those groups have actually been reassessed as a whole multiple times since. So as I mentioned, these biodiversity, these the red list data and biodiversity data sets um, from the red list are really important in forming kind of global priority and, and, and uh, policy and, and high scale actions um, and as a result the bias that the red list has towards terrestrial vertebrates is well has historically been a bit of a problem and something that we've been working to change in IUCN so over the recent years we've really been working to increase the representation of freshwater biodiversity marine biodiversity and also plants and invertebrates to kind of broaden the picture from just terrestrial vertebrates to biodiversity as a whole um, and my role in that comes in assessing five particular taxonomic groups for the red list of threatened species. The decapod crustaceans, which is your crabs, crayfish and shrimps, the freshwater fishes, freshwater mo mollusks, including the bivalves and gastropods, wet-independent plants, and then odonates in your dragonflies and damselflies. So our aim is to get all species in these five groups assessed for the red list to really get a better picture of what's going on with the freshwater realm. So far, we've succeeded in assessing all the species of decapod crustaceans globally and um, odonates globally. And this year, December 2023, we'll see the publication of the first comprehensive assessment of all freshwater fishes. So that's um, there are 18, 000, approximately 18,000 species of freshwater fishes described um, at the moment. Um, we've been working on this on a regional basis. That means um, looking, looking at a region, finding all the species native to that region and then uh, assessing them for the red list. So you can see the regions in red are those that we consider complete um, and the regions in orange, so notably South America, Russia and China are the regions that we are still working to assess the species. But at the moment, we've got about 74% of the freshwater fishes assessed. The rest should follow by the end of this year. Um, that's great, but it's important that we don't just assess a species once because um, a lot can change over time. And so we really want to make sure that the redness assessments are up to date and are showing us the current status of the species. So that brings us nicely to the Atlantic salmon. Um, so this is the current assessment of the Atlantic salmon on the redness website. You'll notice it's assessed as least concern. Uh, the particular point is it was last assessed in 1996. So this assessment is currently 30 years old. Um, I think any of you that are aware of, of the salmon will realise that's probably a least concern assessment for this species is probably not um, a true indication of its current status. And so um, at the last conference, um, owned by everyone conference back in 2019, 
Uh, my predecessor, Will Darwell, sat down and had a conversation with, with Nick Meacham um, of well, then salmon and trout conservation, now wildfish. Um, and the idea came about to reassess the Atlantic salmon for the red list. Um, through that conversation, they were also inspired by work that had been done on the sockeye salmon. Um, so this is uh, another salmon species. And this species was assessed in 2011 by Pete Rand of the IUCN Species Survival Salmon Specialist Group. But he didn't just assess the species, he also assessed the 98 subpopulations. This is just uh, a subset of them, of the species. So that means he did a, an extinction risk assessment, not just of what is the risk of extinction of the species globally, but for each of its individual subpopulations, what is the risk of each of those going extinct? So um, inspired by this, um, a project came about um, funded by Wildfish for IUCN to reassess the Atlantic salmon and also assess all of its subpopulations for the red list in the same man manner that's been done for the, the sockeye. So, as a starting point, I, I imagine you're all familiar with the Atlantic salmon, so I won't go into it in, in lots of detail, but it's an incredibly widespread species distributed across both sides of the Atlantic from about 40 degrees north. Um, on the map, the blue area is the marine distribution and the orange area is the freshwater distribution. So this is an adramus species that migrates up rivers from the sea to spawn. So, um, I'm not going to talk a lot about the, the species level assessment today, but I want to focus in more on the, the subpopulations because that relates nicely to this, this conference on chalk streams. So our first um, question was, how do we divide this global range into um, subpopulations? So a subpopulation, um, as defined in the red list, is a group of individuals that are geographically or otherwise separated from others um, and between which there is little or no demographic exchange. That means one, um, one migrant per year. So um, we ended up splitting the Atlantic salmon into 40 separate subpopulations. For Europe, there'd been a recent um, genetic analysis by Pierre which we used to define um, the subpopulations. And then for North America, we used their, um, the existing subpopulations they had defined for their national um, uh, extinction risk assessment processes. So you can see here the marine range remains the same, but I've coloured all of the freshwater subpopulations um, with different colours to indicate where they're found. So you can see um, over here on the right in Russia, we have some absolutely huge subpopulations. Um, the smallest is uh, actually over here in Greenland. It's so small that you can't see it on the map, but it's um, it's a single river basin. It's called the Capsilla River, and Capsilla actually means place of the salmon. So they named this whole river. Um, and town surrounding area after the Atlantic salmon, which is pretty cool. Um, what I'm going to focus on today is this subpopulation here in the south of the UK, um, which is the English chalk stream subpopulation. So the analysis that Gilby et al. did found this to be genetically extinct from all others, um, all other uh, Atlantic salmon in their study, including those which are right next door you can see here in this larger English subpopulation. So um, I'm going to talk um, briefly through the, the data that we've used um, in the Red List assessment um, of the English chalk stream subpopulation. Um, I can't tell you exactly what the final result is. You'll have to wait until July to find that. But I'm just going to talk through um, the, the, the types of data that, that have, have come up. 
So this here is um, a watershed or, or a basin map of the distribution of the English uh, chalk stream subpopulation. So it covers five language chalk streams. That's the Brome, Piddle, Avon, Test and Itchen. So first thing to note, and this um, goes very well with what um, has already been said this morning, but all of these rivers are considered to be high risk rivers by NASCO. And they're all considered to be either at risk or probably at risk in the 2013 Water Framework Directive. So we can always see, already see that um, this part, the, the, the habitat of, this, of the species and subpopulation in this area um, maybe isn't in the best condition. These five English chalk streams are the ones in the UK which hold significant numbers of Atlantic salmon. And despite these chalk streams being um, distributed very widely from the northeast to the southwest of England, it's actually only this 70 kilometre stretch which comes out as its um, own distinct subpopulation, distinct from all individuals in the neighbouring non-chalk rivers. So, um, as I mentioned earlier, distribution is one factor that we take in when um, doing a redness assessment. So we can see from this that the species has a restricted distribution and so likely qualify as threatened on the red list on that basis. Uh, another type of data that we look at is data on population trends. Um, in this case, we had rod catch data from the Environment Agency which we could use to look at, uh, well, infer, um, estimate how the population trends has changed over the last three generations, which is the um, time period we use when we're looking at a redness assessment. And for this subpopulation, that's equivalent for 12 years. So for the 12 years prior to today, um, overall, the subpopulation has seen a 19% decline in its population based on the rod catch data. There are obviously some assumptions that go alongside that. But what I really want to highlight here is that even though um, this is an incredibly restricted area already, we have five rivers here, there's great variability within the rivers and how the species is doing. So um, the worst case is, is the Piddle, where there was an 80% decline based on the rod catch data in the previous 12 years. Um, you have the Test, which is a 1% decline, so the population is essentially stable over the past 12 years. And then you have the Avon, where there's been close to a 30% increase in the population over the, the past 12 years. Um, for the redness assessment, it's the 19% decline that we would take into consideration. But you can see here, you know, um, even though this is a small area, there's still great variability within that. Um, and if we were to say redo, redo this assessment again at an even finer scale, it could be that you find um, quite big differences even in a, a small region. So what's causing this decline? Um, I'm not going to spend a long time on this because most of this has been mentioned already in the previous two talks. So over-abstraction of water, barriers, agriculture, pollution from sewage, um, invasive species, and all of these are being exacerbated by climate change. So there's, there's threats that are directly affecting the habitat, um, making it inappropriate for the species. And there's also threats, for example, the invasive species negatively affecting the species itself. Um, all that being said, there are a lot of conservation actions ongoing in the five rivers that I mentioned, um, roughly grouped into, well, the first being around river restoration, so that's improving the actual habitat, um, removal of barriers and structures so that the fish can move um, unimpeded, realignment and meandering of, re of the rivers, um, and working to understand and better manage water extraction. This is something that definitely needs to be done in collaboration with the water companies to um, 
before that threat can really, really be abated. There are also some voluntary fishing regulations uh, in some of the rivers, aiming for catch and release, and also restrictions on the number and type of hooks. And importantly, there's increased and improved monitoring. So um, we really, really need monitoring so we can see if conservation actions are being effective, seeing what um, effects on the population they're having. And then we can use these data to feedback into things like the red list to um, make sure we do have these up-to-date assessments of extinction risk. So, as I said, I can't actually tell you exactly what the assessment showed yet because they're still in the final um, stages of, of review, currently with the red list unit who get the final um, have to have to give the final say in the assessments, but we expect them to be published on um, the Red List website in July this year. So at that time, we'll have a reassessment of the Atlantic salmon at the species level, and also all of its forty subpopulations assessed for the first time. So we'll go from this very barren assessment to one that's full of data and um, available for use for the by the various um, uses that I mentioned. And that's it. Thank you very much. Now, thank you very much indeed to all our three introductory speakers, and thank you particularly for all keeping splendidly to time. Um, now we have about 25 minutes for questions, comments, discussion from the floor. I would ask the three um, uh, speakers to come and position themselves here, and if you... Uh, would like to address any question to the whole panel. They can all uh, contribute in answering. If you'd like to direct a question to any particular individual, uh, please do. So, um, over to members of the audience. Right at the back. Good morning, everybody. It's a question I think I can probably shout, actually. You can hear me well enough, can't you? It's got a question from Catherine, I think. Um, Catherine, in your consideration of the status of salmon stocks in those southern chalk streams, did you consider the way in which they're managed as a potential impact on the salmon stock? What, what do you mean exactly by the way they're managed? Well, all of those rivers are quite intensively managed, more or less intensively managed for fishing. Yes. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah, so when we do a red list assessment, we pull together the, the data that I mentioned. So the what the the population data that we have will have been under the current management um, structure as such. So it's assuming that that will continue um, in the same way. And the data we have and the rod catch from the Environment Agency will be on that basis. So that will all be explained um, in the assessment. There um, there are for Obviously, this is just one of 40 subpopulations. There are other subpopulations worldwide which are also quite intensively managed. Um, and on some of those, um, so one in the Gulf of Maine comes to mind in the US. Um, in some of those, there have been um, kind of population viability analyses done or like a quantitative analysis of what would happen if that management were taken away. Um, and we can use that and apply a different one of the redness criteria, which I didn't didn't discuss um to assess the species um that way to see okay so if we take all management away what does this mean for the for the um for the extinction risk of the subpopulation or that it that those types of analyses are very um they're very rarely done and that's not data that we have for 
the UK or this particular church, this particular English chalk stream subpopulation. So that's not something that we could um, explicitly consider aside from the current data we have on the population. Other questions? Yes. I have a question for Catherine as well. Um, is the uh, assessment could, could you sorry. possibly use the microphone? Is the assessment of the chalk stream salmon purely based on the rod catch data, or is there another source that you pull from? Just because rod catch can obviously have a lot of bias. Yeah. So, um, so the way the assessments work, we have five different criteria, um, and they they aim to pull out different aspects of the. Um, different aspects of the population um, biology, let's say, or um, to pull out different reasons why those species might be at risk of extinction. So the first is criterion A, which is the one related to the population decline, for which we've used the rod catch data, because that was the best data that were available. Um, where it's been available for other subpopulations and also for the global um data set we've used pre-fishery abundance data pfa data but that wasn't available for this particular subpopulation so we had to go with the the rod catch noting all the assumptions and caveats that go alongside that yeah. um in the actual final assessment it's likely that that actually won't be the the criteria that's used to assess the species or the red list because we have four other criteria the second one being um criterion b which looks at species with restricted geographic ranges which this subpopulation fits perfectly because as i said it is small it's only those five rivers and those five rivers are under threat so in the final assessment it's likely to be that the species would be listed as threatened based on criterion b so in a way doesn't actually matter what the population data is showing because we're listing it as uh, we can list it in a different category with a higher degree of threat. There are also three other criteria. One is um, criterion E, which I mentioned is the one related to quantitative analyses, but we just didn't have data. Mm -hmm. And then C and D look at particular population numbers. So how many individuals of the species are there? Um, but again, that's not something that we had um, as good data on to assess. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I'll just add to that. The 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 rod data only I'd be I'd be very wary of. The the piddle on that list is the greatest decline, but the most benignly sort of managed of the rivers. Um and the salmon run the piddle after the end of the season. So uh I, I, there, there are a lot of salmon in, well, there are reasonable numbers of salmon in the piddle, yeah. but they're not showing up in rod catches. Um the yeah. test shows the smallest decline, but it's probably the most heavily managed after those rivers. So Yes, the, the assessment itself has um, a lot more supporting information that I could, I could already obviously present here. So it's made clear that there are multiple types of population data that could be used, and we have to use the best that we have that's actually representative of the area that we have, if that makes sense. And in that case, the only one that was available was the, the rod catch data. Um, but yeah, as I said, the species comes up as more threatened on a different metric. Than yeah. <clears throat> uh, to Adam, um, I thought it was a really interesting part of your talk where you said, um, I don't want to use that word, spirituality. Mm. And I'm interested why you kind of pulled back from that in that way. And what, if any, you see the connection between a spiritual change, how we relate to our rivers and the saving of our chalk streams could be. Did you hear that, everyone? I think my anxiety about the spirituality word is that uh, it is easily dismissed. And if you bring it into a meeting, 
you can kind of exclude yourself from consideration by using it. It doesn't mean to say that whatever it implies, which is uh, looking at a chalk stream in more than a merely utilitarian or resource-based or even ecosystem service way is illegitimate. It's just that, you know, if you walk into the treasury and say, I'd like five billion for spirituality, please. <laughs> you wouldn't get a million miles, would you? That's the anxiety. I think actually the word, which is equally hostile and unliked, is intellectuality. I think people need to understand the reality more than just looking at the beautiful imagery. You know, the reality of dropping a water table by eight meters is absolutely real physical truth. And it's, you know, the aquifer is the great unseen abused environment. And it's understanding that that is what has happened and is happening unseen will bring about some change. The, uh, if, if I might be permitted a comment as chair, um, uh, I, whilst you're absolutely right, you will get nowhere walking into the treasury and talking about spirituality. Uh, I tried it when I was second in culture. But if you want to change people's hearts and minds, you have to start thinking and talking about something beyond just the facts and figures. And uh, so it depends on which audience you're wanting to move as to how you pitch the, uh, uh, the, the what you're trying to say. But uh, can I just add to that? Sorry, yeah. seems to me well-being is a bland term, but it is can it can now be managed. And I think the relationship of rivers to our sense of mental health and spiritual spiritual health, yes, but mental emotional health, the power with which we relate to the environment, the renewing power of the rivers. We need to make, and I tell you, was absolutely right about that. You need to find a language which touches people, which moves people. So, um, Tony Davis, a poet and activist. Are just two words I can spell. I'm also for Adam. The key phrase I wrote down when he was talking was "poisoned privacy." This is essentially a kind of maybe a political phrase and quite contentious. But I think since enclosure one of the issues is with no access there's a real question about <laughs> management of ownership and we see it locally in oxfordshire we have on the one hand a really big landowner Blenheim. some things they do very good and some things they do very bad but they own most of it and then we have a lot of tenant farmers and owner farmers and they all lead down to one of the tributaries of the thames the even load, which is not a chalk stream, but it has some of the attributes of chalk stream. There's a gravel beds, which now aren't so gravelly. I've invented a new word, which is ungravel, which is to turn gravel into something else. Um, so I, the question to Adam really is that connection between who owns it and how we evolve into a, a kind of different state. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it is an inherently extremely difficult question. And maybe the answer is actually in government. In government and frame setting and mm. a belief in government that the a culture is no better than its rivers. If, if, if a government can come to believe in that, maybe government can only believe in that if people generally are persuaded that that is true, then a regulatory framework within which private ownership exists can mean that private ownership becomes untoxic, like ungravel, untoxic private ownership, I would say. But it's not. Okay, down here. Uh, can I follow that up? Um... My poem in the programme is about uh, a fa it's really a found poem from trespassing on the test way. Um, and it seems to me there isn't a forum really for resolving the different kinds of uh, access to rivers and waters which are in conflict with each other. Um, Mark will have heard me make a presentation to a Ted Hughes conference. Ted Hughes believed that it was fishermen who were concerned about water quality in his time and that the formation of Southwest Waters Trust would, would extend that concern and that interest. The website of the Southwest Waters Trust at the moment provides advice for dog walkers, river swimmers, and says nothing about fishing, as a matter of fact, because at the last conference here, I found that um, a river watcher uh, uh, and the Southwest uh, believed that the Southwest Waters Trust had been taken over by other interests than the fishing interests, which now compromised them. So where is the forum for the resolution of these conflicting kinds of access which will arise? Uh, Mark, you want to come? Uh, the West Country Rivers Trust, with which Ted was first president of, uh, has now spawned rivers trusts across the country and beyond the country internationally. Um, I completely see the point, because I've heard it um, from a friend of mine, uh, Anne Terry's, Gerald Spires, who knows these rivers in the West Country, deep, very frustrated that the West Country Rivers Trust now defines its success by the number of grant applications it makes to DEFRA. And that has compromised, <coughs> in his view, its, its independence, its freedom to act. I think the question of the forum is something that this forum really needs to get our head around over the next two days. I honestly think we need to tackle the kind of wariness and mutual exclusivity and sometimes hostility between fly fishermen, riparian owners, kayakers, wild swimmers. We need actually to find a way of sharing the wonder that we find in these rivers. And it will be difficult, but we also need absolutely, and I didn't really make enough of this, within the hearing of children, Ted Hughes wrote, within the hearing of children, if we can't find a way of awakening the next generation of river users, swimmers, paddleboarders, kayakers, nature photographers, water bill payers, to the value of these rivers and massively 
the cultural diversity. We are, as Amy Jane Beer said when she saw this great programme, we're all chalky white. We need to make sure that we find ways through film, through music, through David Attenborough, and making sure that episode six of The Wild Isles is not confined only to iPlayer because of fear of alienating the right-wing press, as it has been. That's a real scandal behind Gary Lineker and football. Um, if, it's, I think the internet is ours. We need to sloganize. We had a conversation at the last meeting. If only we could find a Greta Thunberg-friendly phrase <coughs> to unite behind. And then get it out there and get people involved. And I think we just need to find that forum over the next two days, honestly. I don't think we'll have a better gathering to do that. For you guys. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, can I ask, is there any woman member of the audience <laughs> to uh, make a point or ask a question? Yes. If I may, I'd like to go back to Catherine to make a data point. <laughs> that you can only analyse data that you have at your fingertips. but. Most of us in this room would find rod catch a very um, blunt instrument. Um, is there a process that we can apply or apply to which enables um, data from other sources on populations? Uh, is that part of your remit? Uh, kind of. So, so the, the assessments were actually drafted by Will. Sorry, I've got it over here. The assessments were drafted by um, Will Darwell, who's my predecessor. Um, and so he went through the process of, of data gathering. And basically at that time, he reached out to, uh, he listened to all of the published literature and then also reached out to various um, contacts within the UK and globally, because obviously this is not just a UK-based um, process, to get access to the any data that he could at the time. And then once all that was gathered, it was that's what was used um, to do the, the, the assessment as, as it currently is. But um, moving forward, once things are published, then um, we welcome feedback on the, the Redlist website. So there's if you go to the Redlist website, uh, redlist.org. Um, then on each assessment, there's a button which you can put feedback and you can send an email saying, you know, I have data or I disagree, whatever your comment or query is. And that would come into the Redlist unit, which is a team based in the office upstairs with, with um, me. And they would most likely forward that on to me as the, the lead for freshwater biodiversity because I'm in charge of managing all the freshwater assessments. Um, and we could look into incorporating that into the assessment. Um, what, how long that process takes, what that process looks like depends very much if there is an ongoing assessment slash reassessment already or whether it's something that we need to start uh, afresh um just to say just because one person has been an assessor before doesn't mean that it's their assessment forever we welcome inputs from experts um sorry um across the board you don't need to be a member of iucn you don't need to be a member of the iucn species survival commission anyone that has expertise on the species um can can be involved in that process so I guess my response is, um, is once the assessments come out, you can send us an, an email and we can see if the, the data you have, um, if they make any difference, essentially. Thank you. Okay. Um, I, yes. Can I just ask um, Adam uh, something that I probably ought to know, but it might be relevant. 
over the course of the next two days about your very interesting chart about the price of water. Yeah. Um, can That's you give me an idea that. of how many, if any, of those countries uh, is the water uh, provision in the hands of privatised companies? I don't know. <laughs> I, bet I don't know. Who I, could tell us because I don't think that the well, it's, it's another question we <laughs> talk about a lot, but <laughs> the record of the municipal, as you were seeing from the Ted Hughes day, uh, quotes, the record of the municipal water companies was not sparklingly good. And so I know uh, Fergal uh, sort of puts the blame largely on the privatisation moment. No doubt it's been catastrophic in some ways, but it was not replacing a perfect system by any means. The failing with it is the weakness of the environmental regulator in the face of off what? You know, I talked to a Thames Water executive last year and I said, what's this about? And he said simply, off what has had their tanks parked on EA's lawn since 1985. And they have lost every argument with Ofwat. And it's to do with that failure of the environmental regulator more than the ownership structure, which obviously has its failings, but um, public ownership would have its failings too. Thank you. Yes. Can I, following on from that, talk about abstraction? Because Moving on from spirituality or whatever it is, the answer, as with sewage, is that there is an urgent need to make very significant investment uh, to enable abstraction to be reduced. And unless you make that investment, you can't reduce the abstraction. And there's an urgent need to commit, and there's an urgent need to actually get on with it and do it. Now, how are we going to get the public and the government to accept that urgency? And some progress has been made with sewerage. I was going to say it's more sexy than abstraction, but it's certainly more obvious. And it's urgent also because water resources management plans, which are not sexy things, they're almost impossible to understand, are at the moment in progress. And if something is not done pretty soon, they'll be in place and we'll have another five years to wait to do so. I'll say something about that if it helps. You say, you say something, you know. They're all available for consultation, those management plans. There are some quite significant abstraction reductions on the cards. There are different environmental destinations, high, medium and low. And it's really up to everyone to um, submit responses to the water companies. Well, actually, they're closed now, but they'll be open again in autumn, I believe. Um, and, and make the case for those abstraction reductions. The greater the voice and the number of respondents the water companies get, the better case they'll have for arguing for the, the more ambitious environmental scenarios. Um, but the key, Majestic, one final point with chalk streams, the key is to try to insist that the reductions are of, for chalk streams are in all three scenarios because we won't get the high scenario, I don't believe. I think it'll be somewhere in the middle or middle to low because of the cost. But if the abstraction reductions for the chalk streams are in all three, and I think there's a very good case for why they should be, or to do with sewage and dilution of pollution, all sorts of other reasons that stresses those chalk streams are under, then those, those reductions will happen. And then the other thing to emphasize is timeliness. Because although they're on the cards, they're still several decades away, most of them. 
Yeah. I'll have a slide hopefully later to show that. Can I just quickly respond? In order for that to happen, the water resources management plan consultations need to be understandable. Yes. They're totally, totally incomprehensible. I've got a website where I've tried to translate a lot of it, so I'll tell people about that. Yes. Uh, I, um, yes, I, would to I totally agree, and I know you shouldn't, <laughs> I don't want to waste the time on that, but I really agree. We've got to make those water consultations understandable because people simply do not know how to respond. It really, really is difficult. I've been involved with a lot of them. I just want to emphasize the Cambridge one is still open till May. So um, we really want to use this meeting, I hope, to put a good response. I can just add, finally, on Southern Water, we have sent a solicitor's letter. We believe it's in an inadequate consultation and that we could challenge it in the courts if they don't do something about it. As a, sorry, as a final kind of addition to that, because we're talking about water companies, but locally to us, it's, we do have Thames Water Extraction on the even load, and we can't get any dialogue about what that is. And this is a... Uh, a diminishing river feeding the Thames. But we also have local landowners and estates that can extract water with no measurement of volume. So once you have a license, yeah. you can take as much as you like. So that's really just farming. We have a local farmer. He owns and rents from Blenheim, and he makes potatoes which go towards crisps at Tesco's. And he takes a lift of 100 metres to flood his fields to enable potato production over many, many hundreds of acres, but there is no measurement of those licenses. Once you have one, you can take as much as you like. So that's a real worry on the farming. Okay, we've got time for perhaps a couple more questions. Yes. Um, Kevin Hand. Um, many of my colleagues in the environmental movement wouldn't see fishermen as natural allies. And um, I wonder how you might bridge that gap between you know, vegans and anti-hunting people who, who were really key, I think, and allies um, with the, the wonderful, beautiful words that you've, uh, you've used to describe fishing. I'm not a fisherman myself, but I was quite moved by it. So I'd be interested in your thoughts on that. Hey, it's never too late to start, all right? So <laughs> I wish you tight lines. B, I would say, let's use his emphasis on coming to grips with wild fish. That was his motivation. Fishermen try now, and fisherwomen, anglers try to touch fish whom they want to contact and feel the excitement of and the beauty of as little as possible. We all use barbless hooks, so we all should be doing We should not lift fish from the water although the temptation to take a photograph with big fish is is um is pretty irresistible in the 19 in a draft for that tour and torage essay which didn't get published ed wrote i caught two salmon within an hour in perfect conditions and then i realized this fish that this river needs its fish more than i do now, there is, and David Profumo was part of a public debate about the ethics of catch and kill or catch and release a long time ago. And there is a genuine ethical question there. But I think Ted said that, and I say Ted because I'm <coughs> close to him, I think, um, that fishermen carry a biological dynamo in their heads. 
when you're waiting for the right conditions, you're noticing flies emerging, hatching. You're in the river. You're part of it. You clearly, kayakers, paddlers, wild swimmers are too. That Nicola Crockford picture summed that up as at least as well as a fisherman. Um, but I think we have a role to play. But we should not be regarded as the enemy. Honestly, we've got to form a coalition of care, as I call it. Okay, final question, uh, John. Chris, forgive me, it's going to be a comment, actually, rather than a, a question. And I just want, well, first of all, I just wanted to thank Catherine for her presentation, partly because she took this on from Will Darwell mm -hmm. and has done a phenomenal amount of work to deliver this. And July will be a striking moment. Also to say something connected to the discussion that's going on a little bit about, and I'm sure Paul and others will pick this up significantly more, about issues around legal the legislation and the, the, the legitimacy of data. Yeah. One of the key things to remember about the red list and the red list unit, they're the sort of beating heart of this building because the red list assessments have to be robust enough to then drive the process that you saw on one of her slides of key biodiversity areas all the way up to the sustainable development goals. They have to be defendable, although, I can give examples of, say, the European Bird Directive, which has been based on red lift data in the past and has been very successfully used in demanding of European governments that they gazette areas of protection. So at one level, one of the dangers about a conversation about the red list is that it appears very data-driven and very almost remote from reality. And, and I'd say that as a great supporter of the red list, but actually absolutely crucial. And then a very last remark is to say that thanks to Wildfish, but also thanks to the extraordinary conversations that started around Ted Hughes and activism. And I think, sorry, Tony, is it Tony? Tony, sorry, Tony. Tony. What I loved about Tony was how he introduced himself as a poet and an activist. And one of the key things about this is that you can be a poet, and you can write poetry about it, but you can be a poet and an activist. And I think that one of the things is we're all activists now. And it doesn't matter what you do, you are by definition and you have to be in. Sorry, Chris, I hope it's okay. Okay, thank you. Um, uh, now, uh, we're about to break for half an hour for coffee. Um, uh, uh, first, however, <clears throat> can I say a big thank you to Mark and to Adam and to Catherine uh, for setting the scene so brilliantly for us. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for listening to this Owned by Everyone podcast, one in a series of eight recorded at the Conference on the Wonder, Plight and Future of Chalk Streams, held in Cambridge at the end of March 2023. Our conference wouldn't have been possible without generous funding from Pembroke College Cambridge, the University of Cambridge's School of Arts and Humanities Impact Fund and the Cambridge Conservation Initiative. So we want to thank them too. Now, go back to ownedbyeveryone.org and swim in the pool of water resources of all kinds that you'll find there.